Our sermon this morning, we're we're finishing up our sermon series working through Matthew's genealogy of of Jesus, and specifically looking at the females that are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy to to Jesus. So we've we've seen thus far, we've seen uh, five faithful women, right, ancestors of Jesus, many of whom were Gentiles that were were grafted into the nation of Israel, um, and that, that seems to be... Uh, in order to show us that God's plan for salvation is not just for the nation of Israel, but it's for all people uh, all over the world from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation. Uh, many of whom were involved in some sort of scandal, some sort of um, you know sexual immorality or, or, or kind of stigma involve, involving that. And that seems to be to show us that God can uh, redeem and save anyone. Right, that there's no one whose sin is so bad and so disqualifying that they are outside of the reach of God's grace to save to save them. So we saw Tamar, uh, you know, who was seduced, or she seduced her own father-in-law Judah. Uh, she, you know, bore tw- twin children from him. We saw Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, who was in Jericho before uh, Jericho was kind of besieged by the nation of Israel. We saw Ruth, Moabite foreigner, who uh, kind of followed her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem and then ultimately married Boaz. Last week we saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who, you know, David committed adultery with her and then murdered her husband, Uriah. And today we're looking at the last female that's mentioned in the genealogy, Mary the mother of Jesus, one of the most kind of familiar women uh, that we see in, in the Bible. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at her story. We're going to read uh, at the outset, we're going to read the, the remaining 10 verses of the genealogy. So I'm going to try to get through it, uh, despite the fact that there's some weird names in it. And then we're just going to look at kind of a, a biblical theology of Mary, just cover to cover every spot that we see Mary mentioned, everything that kind of comes to bear on who Mary was and how we should understand her and kind of, uh, you know, yes, yeah, yeah, see and kind of view Mary. So we're going to just kind of look cover to cover in the Gospels uh, at, at what we see of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 7 to 16, and then we're going to, then we're going to get rolling. It reads, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of, the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That's all of Matthew's genealogy. And like we said, we've seen five females mentioned, the last of whom is, is Mary that we're going to look at today. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we commit these next few minutes to you. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time as we read and study and, and meditate together and, and consider uh, Mary Uh, and her life and her story. We pray that you would speak to us through it and that you would uh, sanctify us in the gospel. 
It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, first time we see Mary, so we're going to spend the majority of the sermon in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and Matthew chapters 1 and 2. So you can put your finger in those two places or you can follow along on the screen. I think most of the, the passages are there. But after those two kind of, you know, duad, duads or dyads of chapters, uh, we're going to kind of look at a few other places throughout the Gospels. But that's going to, where we, we're going to spend the majority of our time. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God... This is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35, if you're reading in your own Bible. In the sixth month, Luke, or the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, and in your womb you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God himself will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is our first introduction to Mary. An angel comes and greets her and tells her that crazy, insane, no way in the world that that's true news. She's confused, right? You're, you're a virgin, you're going to give birth to a baby, uh, and that baby is going to be God, and he's going to be the eternal king of the universe. And she's confused, and we read in the following verses, how can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child born to you will be holy, the Son of of God. Most scholars agree that Mary was a teenager at this time. So Mary's response is understandably, you know, like any other single virgin teenager would have if an angel tells them that they are pregnant. She thinks there's, you have to be mistaken. There's no way that's not biologically possible. And she's also probably starting to just run through her mind all of the devastating ramifications of this news that she... You can think of how devastating an unplanned pregnancy, how scary and shocking and, and you know, kind of makes you just go flush and, and you know, raises your blood. If, if you find that you have an unplanned pregnancy, even if you're a sexually active uh, adult, that still will, will stop you in your tracks. You're going to, you know, raise all kinds of questions about how am I going to raise this child, uh, you know, if I'm not capable of raising this child, what options do I, do I have? What's everyone going to think of me? What are the implications of this unplanned pregnancy on the trajectory of my life? And there's a lot of unanswered questions. And that's, again, if you like knew going in to sexual activity that this was a, a possibility. This is a, 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 not a, a teenager who is not sexually active. So, so it's got to be all of that shock, all of that surprise, all of that fear, all of that anxiety you know, times a hundred is probably what Mary is feeling at this point. Cause she's probably thinking, all right, well, I'm engaged to Joseph. And the, the, the assumption that that engagement is built on is that I'm not sexually active and he's not sexually active. And once we get married, we're going to be monogamous and faithful to one another. So this is going to really have some sin shockwaves through that relationship. She's also probably thinking, uh, what are, you know, people going to think about me and assume about me? They're going to think that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that he was born to an unwed mother. 
And, and all, of that, all of that stuff happened, right? Like, um, so it's not just conjecture that maybe Mary was thinking about that, well, that it, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, but whether she was thinking about that or not, those things happened, right? In, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, uh, we read that when, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, Joseph, uh, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So as soon as Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, the one thing that's immediately off the table for him is marrying her. He's like, he's trying to decide, do I divorce her publicly or do I divorce her quietly? Because I'm definitely going to divorce her. They kind of understood engagement to be almost a binding contract that required divorce uh, in those days, unlike, unlike today. So she's worried, oh my gosh, what's Joseph going to think? He's going to think I was, I'm unfaithful, and he did think that. And she also is probably thinking, oh my gosh, what are other people going to think? They're going to think that you know, I was, was unfaithful, and that's exactly what we see throughout the Gospels as well. In John chapter 8, we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees uh, about their failure to believe in him, their refusal to believe in him, and he kind of talks about how they, that is evidence that they are actually children of the devil, descendants of the devil, and he says... Uh, you know, he says, I know that you are physically, right? You are physically, genetically, you're the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you have not heard, or, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's implying that uh, my father's God. I speak what God tells me to speak. Your father is Satan. And you, uh, you know, speak what you have heard. You do what you have heard from your father, the devil. And they say, Abraham is our father. We don't know what you're talking about, uh, about this father business. We know who our father is. It's Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth of what I have heard from God. That's not what Abraham didn't hear the word of God and try to kill the people who were saying it to him. Abraham obeyed the word of God and listened to it. I am of my father Abraham. You are doing the works that your father did. Again, he's implying your father is the devil. He rebels against God. He hates God's word. You are rebelling against God. You hate God's word. And listen to their response, which is evidence that like this kind of scandal followed Mary and Jesus all throughout his entire life. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, and that's God, right? We know who our father is, Jesus. You don't. Your mother got pregnant, and she doesn't even know who your father is. That stigma, that scandal followed Jesus. He's a grown man. He's 30-plus years old right now. And he's still dealing with these objections about the scandal of who his father was, the fact that his mother claims that she was, she had gotten pregnant, uh, you know, without having, you know, committed any sort of sexual immorality, but they didn't believe her. We weren't born of sexual immorality like you were. We have one father who's God. I don't know who your father is. So Mary is, is likely just freaking out, right? Joseph's going to be mad at me. Uh, I'm going to just deal with, with scandal and reproach for my entire life because of this news that I have just heard. And the angel says, don't worry, right? Your, your, your cousin Elizabeth, your relative Elizabeth, who uh, consequently was older, much older, and she was also uh, experiencing infertility her whole life. She'd never had a child. She'd been, been married her whole entire life, never had a child. And the angel says, uh, Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant as well, just like you are. Uh, she's really old, and she's, she's pregnant now. And Mary responds in Luke one thirty eight. She says, behold, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? You'd expect Mary to argue about it. Right? You'd expect her to say, it's not possible, you're lying, there must be some mistake. You'd expect her to try to get out of it. Right? I'm too young, I'm, this is not uh, you know, convenient for me, this is going to ruin my life. You'd expect her to throw a tantrum, break things, you know, get mad, run away. And instead, Mary is steadfast and faithful and trusts God and recognizes that, that God is sovereign, she is a servant of the Lord, and she will obey God and kind of walk in accordance with God's word. So uh, in the rest of Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and they kind of have some, some girl talk, and they're really excited about their respective pregnancies, both of which are divine miracles. And then Mary breaks into song in Luke 1, 46 and following. We call it the Magnificat. We just sang about it. Uh, we just sang about it um, in, in one of the songs just now. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary understands herself to Mary understands Jesus to be her Savior, God to be her Savior, and her to be in need of a, of a Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For, who is mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she recognizes that, that God's favor is on her. God has treated her favorably and mercifully and better than she deserves to be treated. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. So Mary recognizes this kind of upside-down economy that, that exists in the kingdom of God, where God is not impressed with people who are rich and powerful, and God loves and draws near to people who are poor and weak and lowly. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary recognizes that Jesus, who's going to be born to her, the Messiah, is the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises from all of, of his uh, history of dealing with humanity. God has, ever since Abraham and even further back, all of our fathers, God has been promising to save his people, and now he has remembered his promises, he has remembered his mercy, and he is going to help his, his people. So this Magnificat, this is like the first Christmas carol, the first, you know, one of the earliest Christian hymns that we have. Mary hears it, hears the word of God, and sings uh, worship and praise to God. That's Luke 1, Matthew 1. That's kind of the, the circumstances leading up to the birth of Jesus, kind of, uh, you know, months in advance. Starting in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we actually see the circumstances around Jesus' birth him itself, which we're pretty familiar with these, but it's worth just, just reading over. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's a lot of misunderstanding kind of around uh, this, uh, th this part here. Um, it's kind of been just misunderstood a little bit in popular culture. So I've, I, tell, me, tell me, if you're like me, you've probably heard a sermon or, or kind of heard, read something about like the... Like you've kind of, you kind of imagine uh, Mary and Joseph going up to an inn, almost like, you know, like a Holiday Inn or something, like a hotel, 
And there's this like mean, cruel innkeeper who turns them away. He doesn't care that there's this pregnant woman about to give birth. And so they have to go to a barn or to a, to a, you know, a, a farmhouse. And, uh, and they're there with all the animals and give, give birth. Probably not what's happened. Um, a lot of scholars agree that... I, you know, I, was, I was watching an uh, online video with a comedian this week. He's like making fun of like cool, hip pastors uh, he's like wearing a sideways hat and he's like, this video, he's like telling everyone to come out to their worship services and he's like, uh, you know, come join, like, come join us because Pastor Steve is going to tell us the Christmas story in a way that you've never heard before. He's going to tell it from the perspective of the innkeeper. And then he goes, and guys, in our hearts, we're all innkeepers, aren't we? And so, so, but, but the, the point, like if you, read this, if you read this passage, there's no mention of the innkeeper. There, there isn't an innkeeper. So it says that, so we, we assume that there's an innkeeper because there's a mention of an in, the last word of the last sentence. However, that word uh, was probably better translated as just place to stay, or maybe even guest room. So we could read it as, uh, you know, they wrapped him in a firstborn in swaddling clothes, laid him in there because there was no room for them in the guest room. There was no place for them in the guest room. So what a lot of scholars think is happening is that Mary and Joseph go to the home of one of their relatives, and a lot of the homes were structured in such a way that there was like a big common family room and then like a, an in-law suite, like a little adjacent kind of a guest room that they would use for, you know, being hospitable to friends and family that were traveling from far away. So they show up at their relative's house and they say, can we stay in your guest room in your kind of, you know, your additional room? They say, it's already full. Uh, other people have it. Or maybe they just say it's too small. Like it, it can't accommodate uh, the delivery of a child, which is clearly what is about to happen. So, so there's no, no place for them in this guest room. And so then they actually stay in the living room, in the main room. The reason why we think that there's a stable the re- you know, is because of the word manger. We're thinking, oh, like they lay Jesus in a manger. That means that there's animals and this is where the hay is held. And if we're, there's animals, then it's probably a farm or a barn house or something. Um, but a lot of animals were brought into the main room of the house at night for safekeeping. You know, keep them shielded from the elements, keep them from being stolen or something like that, and they would have a manger in their house. Uh, and so, so probably what happened is Mary and Joseph go to a relative's house, their in-law suite or their guest room is full, so they just kind of crash right there on the middle of the floor in the main room of the house where there are animals and where there is, uh, is, is a manger. So uh, Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 20, the following verses, uh, we see the angels and the shepherds, they come to worship Jesus, um, and we see Mary treasures up all these things and ponder. Mary is, is watching and observing and, and kind of just taking everything in, kind of taking a mental, you know, taking mental pictures to store up for later. She's pondering these things in her heart. Within, within a few days, within a week, uh, they go, they take Jesus to get uh, circumcised, and then they take Jesus to dedicate him at the temple. This is uh, later in Luke chapter 2. They bring two turtle doves to offer uh, sacrifices on uh, Jesus' behalf, which is the sacrifice of a poor person. Um, they're met by Simeon and Anna, these two elderly people at the temple. Uh, Simeon picks up Jesus and says, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're here. I've seen the Messiah. This is amazing, right? I've been waiting my whole life. Now I can die a happy man because I've met the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And then he looks at Mary and says, this child is going to be opposed by many. It's going to be, you know, appointed for the rise and fall of people and your soul, your heart, Mary, is going to be pierced 
by a sword. So, so right at the outset of Jesus's life, Mary is already kind of, the seeds are being sown that Jesus is going to die. She's going to have to bury her son and mourn his death. He's going to experience persecution and hatred and difficulty in his life. And then he's going to die earlier than he, than he should. In Matthew chapter two, uh, we see the story of the three wise, this is another one that's often misunderstood. There's a lot of kind of misconceptions around the, the Christmas nativity story. Uh, the wise men is just as much as, as the, the, the first one. Uh, first is that we call them wise men. Chances are, uh, well, I mean, our translation here says wise men. Chances are yours does. Um, the word, the, the, the Greek word is, is uh, magos, which, uh, which is where we get the word magi from. These guys are probably pagan, maybe Zoroastrian priests or astrologers or dream interpreters. That's one kind of misconception is that they were wise men when they were, their magi is probably a better, better term. Two is that there were three of them. The, the text doesn't say anywhere that there were three uh, wise men. Rather, it says uh, that they had three different gifts that they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we know that there was more than one, but we don't know how many. There could have been dozens for all we know, but they brought three gifts. And the third misconception is that the wise men, the magi, came and, and kind of visited Jesus on the night he was born, right? You see the nativity, there's Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, angels. All of those are like main cast for the nativity the night Jesus was born. You see those in Luke chapter 2. But the magi, uh, presumably they came much later, days, weeks, maybe even months or years later after Jesus was born was when the magi show up. And there's a couple of reasons why we can think that. One is the, the words that are used in Luke 2, when we see the shepherds visiting Jesus in the, you know, when he's being laid in the manger, they use the word for newborn baby, which is brephos, if you're interested. In Matthew 2, when we see the magi visiting Jesus, they use the word for child or little boy, which is pidon, if you're interested. And so presumably, Jesus is maybe a little bit older when the magi visit than when the shepherds and angels visit the night that he is born. But another clue that we can kind of tell that maybe this happened later is uh, how they interact with Herod. Right in Matthew two sixteen, Herod, when when the Magi are coming through town, Herod says, "Oh, great! I'm glad you're here. I'm really excited to meet this guy too. I love Jesus. I love the fact that he's going to take my throne away from me. I can't wait to go visit him and worship him." And they're like, mm, "I don't. I think you're. I don't. I don't trust you, buddy." But really, Herod wants to kill Jesus because he sees him as a threat to his own power. And so the Magi depart and go uh, go their way a different way. And in Matthew 2.16, we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So presumably the wise men come to Herod. They say, we're here to worship this baby, this, this child, Jesus, who was born. We've kind of seen the, the signs in the stars. And Herod's like, great, I want to come worship him. Tell me uh, where he is and, and w- what's the time frame? Like, wh- how old do you think this kid even is? And they're like, and presumably we can think they said, oh, maybe about two. Like, maybe two years old or younger. But then they never see Herod again. They go another way. And so all the, all the information Herod has to go on, he was hoping to get an address. He was hoping to get a location that he could go kill Jesus. Doesn't get it. All he has is a time frame that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so he says, well, then let's just cover all of our bases and kill all of the children uh, in, in the region that are under two years old. So presumably the, the Magi are arriving within a year or two of Jesus having been born, but not on the night that he is born. But... Uh, fortunately, uh, Jesus escapes this kind of 
mass genocide of, of young male children because an angel comes and warns Joseph and Mary, so they flee to Egypt. They go, they go down to Egypt. They stay there for a little while until Herod dies, and then the angel comes to him and says, okay, you can come back now. Herod's dead, but when they're coming back, they're like, mm, things are still a little raw in Bethlehem, still a little hot because this, this new guy uh, is, is maybe as antagonistic uh, as, as Herod was. So instead of going to Bethlehem, they go to Nazareth, and that's where they kind of set up shop, raise Jesus. That's their home base for all of Jesus' childhood as he's being raised. Next time we see Jesus, next time we see Mary, uh, is in Luke chapter 2, uh, when Jesus is 12 years old. Uh, so, so Mary and Joseph take, take Jesus down to Jerusalem. He's 12 years old to celebrate the Passover. When they're on their way back, they lose Jesus. They have no idea where he is. They just assume he's with his extended family. But by the time they realize he's not, they've traveled more than a day outside of Jerusalem. They have to turn around and kind of backtrack all the way back to Jerusalem. They're looking for hours and days on end. And they finally find Jesus in the temple talking with the religious teachers and Mary is like freaking out. She's like, you know, really scared. She's like really upset. She kind of, you know, rebukes Jesus and says, why did you treat us like this? What were you doing? And so we can learn, like, we don't have a lot of, of details about Jesus's childhood and Mary's experience as his mom. This is the only one. But what little, what little detail we have, we can ascertain that Jesus was just a normal kid. Like Mary's experience as a mother was fairly typical. It wasn't, Jesus didn't have some halo floating around him all the time that like meant that his mom had a completely stress-free existence as a mother. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He never disobeyed. He never did anything wrong. But being a mother to Jesus and his siblings was still hard work. And it was, it was worrisome, right? Um, you know, G- Mary, all of the normal feelings that parents have when they feel overwhelmed or they feel like they, you know, are, are kind of stretched beyond the capacity of what they can bear. Jesus felt all of that, right? She was still a mom and it was still hard for her. And then after this, we see Mary, uh, Luke two fifty one. his mother, Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. We see that over and over. That Mary was kind of observing Jesus' childhood, observing the circumstances around his birth, observing him as he's growing up, and she's kind of internalizing them and kind of keeping them for, for later, to kind of meditate on and to kind of consider uh, later. Next time we see Jesus, he is uh, going out into the wilderness. He's grown up now, so he's heading out to get baptized and start his early earthly ministry. Next time we see Mary is at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. So there's a big wedding, it's a big party, Jesus is there, uh, Mary is there, Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, all right, what, what do you want from me? Like, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Mary goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you, which is weird because, because he just told Mary he's not going to do anything. Like, if someone comes up to you and says, they ran out of wine, and you're like, great. I don't know what you want me to do about it. Nothing I can do. And then that person goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. I'd say, well, here's what I'll tell you to do. Go back to her and tell her, you know, get a drink of water. Because, because I'm, I'm not going to, like, there's, there's nothing that I, that I can do. But, of course, Jesus, uh, you know, says, get, take those big basins of water, fill them up with water, and then take a glass of water to the, the host of the party. And it's got, like, the best wine that they've had. And the, the host of the party is, you know, excited that they have this great wine now. Every, you know, party is saved. Everyone, you know, saves face. You know, Jesus kind of, uh, you know, had this, this, you know, big big first miracle. And it was almost as if Mary knew 
right? Like all of the internalizing, all of the observing, all of the watching and pondering and thinking that Mary was doing for the first 30 years of Jesus's life. You can see that kind of coming due now. She knows that Jesus is, that Jesus is uh, supernatural. She knows that Jesus has power over nature. She knows that a problem like this is well within uh, his ability to, to fix. Next time we see Mary is in Mark chapter 3. And this is maybe one of those like, you know, um, kind of not, not bump in the road, but this is just kind of an evidence of just like, um, just, just difficult. Sometimes, sometimes even Mary, as faithful and godly as she was, sometimes her faith uh, wavered. Sometimes it was difficult for her to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. Jesus went home. There's a great crowd gathering around him. Nobody could even eat. Jesus is teaching. And when his family, this is Mary and Jesus's brothers and sisters, um, when they heard Jesus was teaching and they see this big crowd forming, they go out to seize him. And they're saying, this guy is out of his mind. Like Jesus is crazy. We have to get him out of the public eye because he is, uh, you know, it's reflecting poorly on us and on our last name. Like, he is really uh, embarrassing himself and embarrassing the whole family. And then a couple of verses later, it says, And his mother, Mary, and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called him, right? Tell Jesus to come to us. We need to take him home. And Jesus, or they say, Your mother and brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And Jesus answers, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mary, along with the brothers of Jesus, is worried about their reputation. She's worried about the fact that Jesus is embarrassing himself or bringing reproach upon the family. They try to go get him. And Jesus basically says, I know that you all are my physical family, and, and I, I appreciate that, but the reality is my physical family is temporary. It's only here for a few short years, and I am here to build a large, eternal, spiritual family. God, God is my Father more than anyone else, and, right, and, and God, my Father, sent me right, to, to all of humanity. I'm the big brother of all of humanity, and I'm here to kind of get my brothers and sisters and gather them and kind of adopt them and bring them into the family so that we can live as one big family forever and ever in heaven with God our Father. My family's not just physical relatives. My family is anyone who trusts in me to save me from their sins. So it's kind of a, a brushback pitch to Mary and, and to Jesus' brothers that, like, you know, uh, ultimately, my family is, is a spiritual family created of those who trust in Christ and who are incorporated into the church. It's not a matter of, you know, bloodlines and things like, things like that. And Mary responds well, right? Mary's a faithful woman. She trusts God, even when it's difficult, even when it's embarrassing, even when her faith wavers, even when she's tempted to be embarrassed by Jesus, she perseveres. And here's how we can know that Mary perseveres. Because in John chapter 19, the next time that we see Jesus, it's at the cross. It's, it's, right, it's, it's right by Jesus' side as he's dying on the cross, bearing the sins of humanity. All of his friends, all of his followers, all of his disciples have all uh, fled. They've all abandoned him and deserted him. Peter himself, his right-hand man, has, has you know, uh, denied him three times. Everyone has left Jesus alone. God the Father himself has turned his back on God the Son. Jesus is bearing all of the judgment and, and wrath from God for all of humanity. He's entirely alone. The only person who's anywhere near him is his mother. 
Standing by the cross, Jesus saw his mother. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who Jesus loved, that's John standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. In other words, this is the man that I am appointing to take care of you as you uh, get older. And then Jesus said to his disciple, behold your mother. In other words, I want you to, to take care of my mom. Look after her. I'm dead. I can't do it anymore. I want you to do it. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Right up until the end of Jesus' life, Jesus loved his mother, looked out for his mother, made sure that his mother was taken care of and provided for, and right up until the end of his life, Mary stood by Jesus and trusted Jesus and loved Jesus. And she publicly identified with Jesus even when it was not popular to to do so. Right up until the end of his life when he's dying on the cross, Mary's beside him. And even beyond that, even beyond his death, even into the days of the early church, when we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, is the last mention that we see of Mary. It's shortly after Jesus' death. It's after his resurrection. It's after his ascension. He's gone back up into heaven to be with his father, and all of his disciples are there, and they're like, well, I guess we can just go home. So they, they returned to Jerusalem, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All 11 of those guys, everyone minus Judas Iscariot. They were all there with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his, his brothers. So all, Jesus, Mary stands next to Jesus her entire life. She might, you know, at, at times kind of be concerned, be scared, not know how to, how, how to proceed. Maybe she kind of falls, you know, prey to temptation and says, hey, Jesus, you're embarrassing us. Come home time, you know, here and there. But on the whole, Mary has a, a, a reputation, a pattern of faithfulness and steadfastness and godliness. When Jesus is dying and everyone leaves him, she's there. When Jesus goes back up to heaven, she's there with his disciples, with the leaders of the early church. She's counseling them. She's helping them. She's standing by them. Time and time again, Mary trusts God even when God's word seems impossible, even when God's word seems ridiculous, even when it seems like everything that, uh, you know, everything that I've ever learned in my entire life, this runs counter to that. Mary trusts God. Even when it's costly, even when people are going to laugh at her, even when people are going to judge her and persecute her, Mary trusts God. And in that sense, Mary is a great example to us as believers and followers of Jesus today. But here's a trick with Mary, right? Being, being an evangelical Protestant Christian in 2020, like it's, it, it's weird how we understand Mary and, and relate to her, right? There are, right, there are entire denominations that have an unhealthy understanding of Mary and they come up with all kinds of weird doctrines as a result. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary was sinless. She never sinned once, uh, not in word, thought, deed, motive, anything. And therefore Mary, they, they don't, they understand that Mary did not need a savior, they actually teach that she's almost a co-savior with Jesus of the rest of humanity. They also teach that Mary, uh, they teach that not only did Mary conceive, like Jesus was conceived uh, through kind of divine, miraculous virgin birth, but they teach that Mary herself uh, was born 
from the, 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 as the result of the miraculous, immaculate conception. So the idea is that if Jesus is going to be sinless, then Mary has to be sinless. And if Mary has to be sinless, then there has to be something special about Mary's birth uh, that she had to somehow escape the original sin that she would have otherwise inherited from her parents in order for her to be sinless so that she can give birth to Jesus who would be, would be sinless. They say Mary never sinned. Uh, Mary was born through this miraculous, immaculate conception. And they also hold to what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. They say that Mary never had sexual relations with Joseph, her husband, for her whole entire life. So she was sinless leading up to it, and she was a virgin all the way uh, until she, she died. And like I said, they, they kind of understand Mary to be a, a co-redeemer or, or a co-mediator with Jesus, right? right? So we pray to Mary, and we ask Mary to be gracious to us. And, and we uh, ask Mary to help us come to God, right? Like Jesus is the primary mediator and we come to Jesus to get to God, but Mary is the secondary mediator and we come to Mary so that we can get to Jesus so that we can get to, to God. The problem with all of that is that none of it is biblical. And so the Bible doesn't say that Mary was sinless. In fact, like we saw in the Magnificat, Mary says that my heart rejoices in God, my Savior, Jesus is my Savior. Who needs saviors? Sinners. Mary understood herself to be a sinner who desperately needed grace and she needed to be saved by God, just like every other person that has ever lived. The Bible doesn't say that Mary was born via immaculate conception. In fact, it doesn't say anything about Mary's birth at all. So we don't have any reason to think that Mary was born in any other way than just a typical birth, regular baby girl born to a regular guy and a regular, regular mother, regular father. The Bible doesn't say that Mary never had sexual relations with Joseph. Uh, in fact, uh, Matthew 1 that we read earlier, uh, it says Joseph didn't have any relations with Mary until she gave birth to Jesus, kind of implying that after Jesus was born, uh, Mary and Joseph had a regular marriage with a regular sex life and, and regular, they were a regular family. And then in Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus is teaching. He's like teaching this really powerful sermon in his hometown. And everyone's like, is this like, we know, like this kid played on the soccer team with my kid. Why, what is he like talking so authoritatively to us about? And here's what we read about Jesus and his uh, townspeople's understanding of his family. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that was given to him? How such mighty work, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, Jesus, the son of Mary, and the brother, so Jesus has four brothers, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So these are sons of Mary and Joseph. And are not his sisters with us? So there's plural. So Jesus had at least six siblings. So at the very least, it was a family of nine, two parents, Jesus, and then six siblings, four brothers and two sisters, if not more. And they took offense at him. So, so Mark 6 shows us that Mary wasn't, uh, she wasn't a virgin perpetually throughout her whole life. She's a regular wife, regular mom, gave birth to a lot of kids, raised a lot of kids. And the Bible is also very clear that Mary doesn't play some role in our redemption. It's very clear that Jesus alone does that. Right? Jesus is our Savior and Jesus alone. Acts chapter 4, Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 
Paul agrees with him in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. Mary is not a co-mediator. Mary is not a co-redeemer. So, the Catholic Church does formally teach a lot of things about Mary that are deeply problematic. That much is, is we can be sure of. We can all agree on that. But there are a lot of Protestant Christians who see that, uh, that error that's being taught in the Catholic Church, and they kind of swing way in the other direction. They want to distance themselves from the, from the Catholic Church, and they kind of uh, they see this unhealthy preoccupation, they overcorrect, and they refuse to give Mary the honor that she deserves. For a, lot of, a lot of Protestants, this is what they think about Mary. They just say, Mary was a sinner, I'm not Catholic, let's move on. Right? And that's like their, their entire understanding of who Mary is. But that's not helpful either because, you know, the reality is that we can and should recognize the defective, dangerous doctrines that are taught about Mary by other denominations. We should call them out for what they are and we can, we should deny them. And we should also affirm the good things that the Bible teaches about Mary. We should embrace those things and we should agree with them. So even though Mary wasn't sinless, she wasn't a perpetual virgin, she wasn't born through some immaculate conception, and she wasn't a co-redeemer with Jesus, we can and should still affirm that Mary was a godly woman, and a faithful woman, and an exemplary woman. We should look at her and we should aspire to have a faith like hers, right? Given what we read about Mary in Scripture, it's entirely uh, appropriate, right? We should, we should say that, that Mary heard the word of God, she listened to it, she trusted in God, she submitted to it. When God called her to walk through things that were difficult or confusing, when God called Mary to suffer, Mary persevered and she walked with God and she suffered well. Mary trusted in Jesus, she stuck with him, she stuck by his side through thick and thin until the very end, until his death. And even while Jesus was hanging on the cross, Mary was right there with him. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, Mary was right there with his disciples, right? The leaders of the church. She was encouraging them, serving them, and helping them. Mary was, by and large, throughout her entire life, a picture of Christ-like, humble, trusting, persevering faith. And if we, as Christians today, if we aspire to trust in Christ, if we aspire to walk with Christ, if we aspire to persevere in repentance and faith and glorify Christ with our lives, then we would do well to be like Mary, who, according to, to Matthew chapter 1, was the wife of Joseph, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the example that Mary is for us, a godly woman who trusts God and obeys God and perseveres in faith. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow her example, help us to remember the incarnation of Jesus this week at Christmas. Help us, Lord, to trust you and obey you and walk with you and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.